Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Imsibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe fires his deputy Joyce Mujuru and Somali forces arrest more than 60 Al-Shabaab rebels. In economics, power challenges to affect manufacturing sector growth in South Africa and in sports news, HSBC Rugby 7 Series to be held in South Africa this weekend. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe is reportedly planning to ask several more cabinet ministers after sacking Vice President Joyce Majuru. Majuru, seven cabinet ministers and one deputy minister were sacked for allegedly plotting to oust Mugabe. They have denied the charges. Two new vice presidents are expected to be announced today after a meeting of the ZANU-PF Central Committee. Judge Toguzile Masipa will today hand down her ruling in the appeal case of the conviction and sentencing of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius in the High Court. Earlier, defence lawyer Barry Rue argued that Masipa's application of the law was correct, adding that the state had no basis on which to appeal. The state has launched its application to have the athlete's culpable homicide conviction and sentence appealed in the Supreme Court. Pistorius was sentenced to five years in prison for shooting his girlfriend Trivestian Camp on Valentine's Day. Rue says the court's findings were based on facts. You did not foresee that it would kill. That is a factual finding. Whether that's right or wrong, I say it's right, but it doesn't matter. However, Prosecutor Gerenal said the court had asked what the termed incorrect questions. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maiti Nkwana Mashibane has confirmed that at least five South Africans are currently being held abroad, but says revealing further details could jeopardize government's efforts to free them. She briefed the media in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, yesterday after the body of Bloemfontein retired teacher Pierre Korki arrived at the Waterkloof Air Force Base. Korki was killed during a failed rescue mission by U.S. Special Forces in Yemen at the weekend. Guanamashibane says she regrets Korki's death. However, she says they will continue to cooperate with other foreign country security forces in their operations to free kidnapped nationals. What remains is we need to all work together and focus on combating terrorism and that which comes with it, including hostage taking. I think the intentions were good, 
but the outcome was not what was desired. May we also give the Korkis family space to mourn the passing on of their loved one, including that of the American citizen, so that we show the respect that they had asked of us. Weapons seized by the UN mission in South Sudan, Anmus, on land set aside for displaced people in the capital, Juba, have been destroyed. Thousands of South Sudanese displaced by the conflict between government and rebel forces are sheltering at the so-called protection of civilian site. Speaking at the event for the destruction of the weapons, the head of Anmus, Elin Magrith Lodge, said that over the past 12 months, the mission has recovered weapons and ammunition at the location. She pointed out that that in most instances these weapons have been surrendered by civilians and former fighters seeking shelter. We will destroy the firearms seized in Juba with the support of United Nations Mine Action Service and the weapons consist of pistols and AK-47 assault rifles. This is the first in a series of such weapons and ammunition destruction events that will take place throughout the months of December. And finally, Botswana police are investigating an incident in which 13 children without travel documents were found on a minibus in the country. Police spokesperson Nia Bagel says the children aged 3 to 13 are believed to be Zimbabwean. Bagel says they were found yesterday morning during a police operation in Francistown. Two men have been held for questioning. The minibus was travelling to Francistown. Police and immigration officials are engaging the Zimbabwean counterparts to identify the parents of the children. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it is exactly 8.06 Central African time on this Wednesday, December the 10th, the 344th day of the year 2014, with 21 days left in the year. Our top story is Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. Mugabe has responded with venom to the allegation of treason by dismissing his vice president Joyce Mujuru together with eight cabinet ministers. The sacking yesterday did not come as a surprise, although Zimbabweans feel Grace Mugabe, the first lady, is behind the decision. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. 90-year-old Zimbabwean president Robert Mugabe has fired his deputy vice president Joyce Mujuru together with eight ministers with immediate effect. Mugabe's behavior was surprising despite it being known soon after the elective congress last week that he was going to make a cabinet reshuffle. It is not clear why the Zimbabwean president took such a drastic measure, the first of its kind since independence in 1980, although the first lady is believed to be the character behind the sacking who openly attacked the vice president for trying to topple the president through unconstitutional means. So far, the current Minister of Information, Professor Jonathan Moyo, is the only lieutenant to have been fired for insubordination in 2006. Moyo was, however, later invited back into the Zimbabwean government following the ruling party's embarrassing defeat to the opposition movement for democratic change in 2008. 
Sources in President Robert Mugabe's information department says the letters of dismissal were delivered last night ahead of the Tuesday's cabinet meeting, Tuesday chaired by the president. Although indications were pointing to a cabinet reshuffle soon after the elective congress last week, Mugabe's move Tuesday was sudden, which shows he is really angry. Zimbabweans feel the sacking of the vice president and ministers is not Mugabe's making, but Grace who went on a tour nationwide accusing the vice president of incompetence, treason and funding factionalism in the ruling party. Robert Mugabe is not like that. He is known to be tough but shy. At the Congress, he complained in Shona that his wife is always stepping into his way and said, down with Zanupiev, in an angry reaction to a note written by his wife to sit down after speaking for nearly an hour. Mugabe is known for not forgetting and forgiving, and this has resulted in several ministers losing their positions since independence in 1980. Former Education Minister Zingam Tumbuka, Minister Inosinkala, Minister Edmund Garwe, Minister Nkosana Moyo, Minister Inosichkore fell out of favor with Mugabe, but they however resigned on their own. Other ministers sagged include Indigenization Minister Francis Nema, Energy Minister Zikamayama Vaire, his deputy Munacho Mutezo, ICT Minister Webster Shamu, Labor Minister Nicholas Goche, also dismissed a higher education minister Olivia Mchena and Minister for Presidential Affairs Didmas Mtasa and Mashonaland East Minister of State for Presidential Affairs Simbaneuta Mudarikwa. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has asked the court to grant her leave to appeal a decision by the chamber not to refer Kenya to the Assembly of States parties over non-compliance with the court. The appeal comes just days after Fatou Bensouda announced that she was withdrawing charges against Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta, arguing the Kenyan government's non-compliance with the officer's investigation compromised their ability to investigate those responsible for the 2007-2008 post-election violence. A coalition of NGOs has slammed the Kenyan government's alleged intransigence and rejected it as a victory for Africa's position against the court. Show in Bryce Peace reports. Citing non-cooperation among the reasons for withdrawing the charges against Kenya's head of state, Bensuda is now appealing a court decision not to refer the matter to the Assembly of States parties currently meeting in New York. Stephanie Barber is with Amnesty International that is part of the Coalition for the ICC. The Office of the Prosecutor filed application for leave to appeal the judge's ruling that found, as James mentioned, that Kenya had not cooperated in turning over some kinds of documentary evidence requested by the office in the investigation against Uhuru Kenyatta, but did not refer it to the Assembly for consideration. And so the prosecutor has, has sought to appeal that, that specific part of the decision. Bensuda withdrew charges against Kenyatta after failing to convince judges to postpone the case indefinitely, 
but still wants the case to be debated by states' parties in the hopes of a reprimand over specific non-compliance. Barber again. The Assembly does have procedures to deal with non-cooperation. Those procedures um, very much focus on applying diplomatic pressure to states in order to procure cooperation. Um, they have been seldom used, and this led to the proposal by some states to call for a review of those procedures next year with a view to strengthening them and perhaps developing um, what practical things uh, the Assembly could do to promote cooperation in such cases, which we feel is very necessary and something that should be actively discussed at this session, particularly as there now seems to be a bit of space for that because the Assembly doesn't have to deal with a live instance of non-cooperation. The Coalition for the ICC called cooperation a central tenet for parties to the Rome Statute, but the ICC lacks both an army and police force. Human rights lawyer James Gondi represents Kenyans for peace with truth and justice. It relies on state parties um, to cooperate with the court in order to facilitate investigations and prosecutions. Um, the onus on co with regard to cooperation and the burden in, in, with regard to cooperation lies with the state's parties. And um, the system of the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court relies on that fundamental principle. Therefore, when a state like Kenya fails... Um, um, in its obligations to cooperate with the court, including um, in the availing of records and materials required for prosecution, then um, action should be taken against that state. We cannot shift uh, the onus and the burden with regard to cooperation um, from the state party to the office of the prosecutor. Kenya is leading a charge at the Assembly of States Parties to introduce proposals that would grant immunities for sitting heads of state and government before the ICC. The current session ends on December 17th. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. As the 122 countries that support the International Criminal Court meet in New York this week, ringing in their ears will be the denunciation of Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, who described the ICC case against him, which finally collapsed on Friday as a travesty. There's a packed agenda for the week-long meeting of the Assembly of States parties, including, ironically, the election of six new judges. But one issue cuts right to the future of the court, how the most high-profile case in its 12-year history became such an embarrassment. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Leslie Lefkow, a deputy director for Human Rights Watch Africa Division. And I think there's no doubt that the ICC could have done a better job in the Kenyan cases, and there were certainly shortcomings by the prosecution of the ICC that contributed to where we are today. However, having said that, I think the larger problem with the Kenya cases and the charges against Uru Kenyatta, I think the larger share of blame lies with the Kenyan government and with the Kenyan government's failure to cooperate with the International Criminal Court and with the, you know, very alarming pattern of intimidation of witnesses that has taken place in this case. And I think that 
the bottom line here, the, the lesson learned here, I think there are lessons for everyone, but I think that the biggest losers in this picture are actually the victims in Kenya, the people who died or who lost family members, friends, during the post-election violence. And frankly, the prospect of seeing justice for those crimes seems very remote. You've mentioned that there were some shortcomings, you know, by the International Criminal Court themselves in prosecuting this case. And the chief prosecutor, Ben Suda, has said, like you have mentioned too, that the Kenyan government obstructed her investigation repeatedly, defying requests to deliver, you know, cell phone and financial information, which was alleged to link the president to the gangs behind the violence until the case, of course, ran into a complete stopstill. But the thing is, could the International Criminal Court, with the backing of the international community, and particularly the United Nations, not have forced the government of Kenya to deliver those crucial documents? You know, it's hard for me to know. I don't think I'm in a position to second-guess the prosecutor's decision on this. I mean, I think that there are questions that can be asked about whether the court should have pushed further on the cooperation issue. The judges, on the one hand, criticized the government for not cooperating, but also criticized the prosecutor of the court for not raising concerns about cooperation from the Kenyan government earlier. So the judges sort of meted out blame um, on both sides there. Whether or not they could have taken a stronger line with a government that's not cooperating, I think that's a fair question. I would hope that in future we would see lessons learned from this experience that would strengthen both the prosecutor's investigations when they decide to you know, pursue charges against very high-level officials, and also a strengthening of support from the region. I mean, I think we can't forget that some other leaders within the African Union, other governments, have also played a very unhelpful role. I think that the Kenyan government's campaign to undermine these cases, you know, received strong support from some governments in the region. And there's a a level of hypocrisy there. I mean, when you look, for example, at the fact that some of the African leadership have criticized the International Criminal Court for targeting Africa unfairly, as they put it, and yet when opportunity arises, for example, to support justice and an ICC investigation in North Korea, they don't actually support that. So I think that, you know, there are many questions to be asked around many different actors, I think, in this situation. Talking about um, the African member states, now the International Criminal Court's 122 member states are at this meeting now in New York. And surely Africa will be the focus, you know, as the court is roiled, like you rightfully said, by the collapse of this case against Kenya's president and also the charges by African leaders that the court targets only Africans. Now, what can reconcile the court with African leaders? There are 34 African member states, the highest of any continent. How can the ICC change Africans' negative perception of the court? I think there's work to be done there. Clearly, the court has to do better work on its outreach. I think that 
of course, seeing other cases that are outside of Africa being brought to the court, being investigated by the court, will be the strongest way to counteract the criticism that the court is only targeting Africa. As I said, North Korea is a situation which, you know, would be an important case for the ICC to look at. And there is some support among many member states of the UN for an ICC referral of North Korea. But, you know, again, as I said, in a recent vote at the UN, 20 African states did support the referral of North Korea to the ICC, but then a number of them didn't. And one has to ask why, if they want to see the ICC uh, playing a a more even-handed part in, in international justice, they should support such a resolution. And that was Leslie Lefkow, Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch Africa Division, on the line from Amsterdam, speaking to Jose Dingake. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Authorities in Somalia have arrested more than 60 Al-Shabaab suspects following the killing of 15 people, including two prominent journalists, in the south-central city of Baidoya in the troubled Horn of Africa. The arrest follows a major operation carried out by Somali security forces assisted by African Union troops. James Shimanyula tells us more. According to a senior police officer in Baidoa, Colonel Mahad Abdul Rahman Adan, the arrested suspects are believed to have links with Al-Shabaab militants. Adan said two suicide bombers were involved in the killings. One bomber drove an explosive-packed vehicle into a crowd outside a hotel seconds before it exploded in Baidoa. A second bomber, Adam said, walked into a second hotel in the area before blowing himself up. The killing of the two journalists has shocked and angered Tom Rhodes, East Africa representative for the Committee to Protect Journalists. Speaking to me, Rhodes had a strong message of caution to Somali journalists likely to fall prey to future Al-Shabaab attacks. There are some basic uh, procedures that can take place. One area that, that Somali journalists are almost routinely targeted is on their way home from work. I think Somali journalists need to monitor each other when they are coming and leaving work to try and avoid crowded areas, potential targets. Also shocked by the killing of the journalists is Abdi Wahab, Abdi Samad, the Mogadishu-based expert on Somalia's political and military issues. In his opinion, Abdi Wahab, Abdi Samad singles out journalists as Al-Shabaab's main enemy. Journalism in Somalia today is the main enemy of Al-Shabaab. Most of the journalists either the work international organizations or local radios controlled by the area, controlled by the government. They see journalism as a threat to the activities of Al-Shabaab. They see those journalists, they are working against what you call the ideology of Al-Shabaab. So anyone who come a program which against the ideologies or the activities of Al-Shabaab, that person will become a prime suspect, the prime target of Al-Shabaab. They have to eliminate. 
sharing his thought and reflection on the killing of the two journalists in Somalia, his former United Nations representative to the Horn of African Nation, Augustine Mahiga. And this continues to be a major concern for the international community and the other journalists. We see this as a pattern of spoiler behavior to silence. And it could come not only from Shabab, but even the agents of the spoiler. It could be killings that are meant to spread fear, but why journalists? In a post-conflict situation where investigation, police capacity, courts do not exist, it's very difficult really to, to overcome these phases. The only way we can do is to continue to enhance the security. It may not be possible to put an army soldier behind every journalist, and the journalists by their very nature, they want their independence. The latest killing of the journalists in Baidoa brings to fall the number of journalists slain in Somalia by suspected Al-Shabaab militants since the beginning of this year, that is 2014. Last year, according to Tom Rhodes of the Committee to Protect Journalists, four Somali journalists were killed by Al-Shabaab militants. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in history today to 2013, which is last year, when U.S. President Barack Obama energizes tens of thousands of mourners and nearly a hundred visiting heads of state at a memorial service in Johannesburg with a plea for the world to emulate Nelson Mandela, the last great liberator of the 20th century, in a eulogy for the prisoner who became peacemaker. Let's listen to President Barack Obama's speech. To Grasa Marcel and the Mandela family, it is a singular honor to be with you today, to celebrate a life like no other. To the people of South Africa, people of every race and every walk of life, the world thanks you for sharing Nelson Mandela with us. His struggle was your struggle. His triumph was your triumph. Your dignity and your hope found expression in his life, and your freedom, your democracy, is his cherished legacy. It is hard to eulogize any man, to capture in words not just the facts and the dates that make a life, but the essential truth of a person, their private joys and sorrows, the quiet moments and unique qualities that illuminate someone's soul. How much harder to do so for a giant of history who moved a nation toward justice and in the process moved billions around the world. Born during World War I, far from the corridors of power, a boy raised herding cattle and tutored by the elders of his Dembu tribe, Madiba would emerge as the last great liberator of the 20th century. Like Gandhi, he would lead a resistance movement, a movement that at its start had little prospect for success. Like Dr. King, he would give potent voice to the claims of the oppressed and the moral necessity of racial justice. He would endure a brutal imprisonment 
emerging from prison. Without the force of arms, he would, like Abraham Lincoln, hold his country together when it threatened to break apart. And like America's founding fathers, he would erect a constitutional order to preserve freedom for future generations, a commitment to democracy and rule of law, ratified not only by his election, but by his willingness to step down from power after only one term. What a magnificent soul it was. We will miss him deeply. May God bless the memory of Nelson Mandela. May God bless the people of South Africa. That was U.S. President Barack Obama addressing mourners at a Nelson Mandela memorial service at the FNB Stadium in Soweto on this day last year. I, Nelson Holisasa Mandela, do hereby say to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler, like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he led us. His role as president in the process of nation building was exemplary and wonderful. You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship. Nelson Mandela, a giant of two centuries. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe is reportedly planning to axe several more cabinet ministers after sacking Vice President Joyce Mujuru. SEDEC facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to arrive in Lesotho today for more talks to create a suitable climate for the Maseru polls. And South Africa's International Relations Minister, Maite Nkwana Mashibane, has confirmed that at least five South Africans are currently being held abroad, but says revealing further details could jeopardize government's efforts to free them. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Today is Human Rights Day. The day marks the United Nations adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. To mark the day, non-governmental organization Help Age International is highlighting the discrimination against older persons, which it says is one of the last remaining forms of prejudice that should be tackled on a global basis. It says a new United Nations Convention on the Rights of Older People is the only way to challenge age discrimination. For more on this, Komoto Mopulane spoke to Nicodemus Chipfupa, Regional Director of Help Age International, Southern Africa. Human rights for us is uh, a global network um, working with and for older persons intergenerationally. is the cornerstone and pillar for all what we do because we pursue the rights-based approach. And uh, without rights, development at best could turn into welfare where people not engaged and consulted and uh, given opportunities to 
uh, demonstrate and contribute uh, meaningfully towards what they think and believe means so much in their well-being. Helpage International is calling for 365 days human rights. Human rights for all ages on a life course approach. Human rights for all peoples of all nations and of all colors. Human rights which should translate into tangibles within national global development strategies. Human rights which need to be resourced uh, at all levels for them to be realized. It's been said that um, some of the you know, human rights standards and mechanisms that have been uh, done before have failed to actually protect people's rights, and especially those of older persons. What is the reason for this? Why are there policies and, and mechanisms that are put in place but they are unable to, to do what they're actually aimed at doing? Currently, old age uh, has not been recognized in many nations as representing uh, people, the formal employment and those in decision-making positions have thought all around aging in relation to by and large formal employment and formal employment as one gets older is about retirement and benefits associated and nothing more. Forgetting that the majority of older men and women are in the informal sector and there are no policies which directly link to them. As such, we have found many an older women and men forgotten and left out within policies. The other point is uh, planning at national level is about numbers as well. And in Africa, Africa is still young, but even the global demographic transition tells a different story now in accordance to our Global Watch Index. Africa is becoming of age, and uh, by day older persons are increasing. But that has not helped for older persons to be visible. Neither do they appear to be a political constituency, even as our studies as Helpage International indicate that. Even as they are fewer in numbers, they are the highest voters. Politicians have not recognized that, yet to recognize that fact. It then requires that uh, older persons be visible if they would be seen and heard, the potential of them being included in national development agendas and global development agendas would be higher because they have huge contributions to give. Uh, they have given it and they continue to, to give it. So the marginalization in, in um, the national or global agenda is because they are by and large not visible, they are not vocal, therefore when decisions are made, they are not part of the discussions and therefore left out and forgotten. Now we know that um, HelpAge International has a number of innovative projects and initiatives that they are doing to um, combat age discrimination and the like. How are those going? And tell us just about your involvement in that regard. One for certain study which we have taken on 96 countries on the globe is what we call the Global Age Watch Index, which compares the well-being of older persons on four domains, income, health status, 
the sources of information are those sources which happen to have global comparable data such as the World Bank, Garop, and so forth. We have managed to produce narratives for each country concerning the four domains I mentioned. And those country narratives tend to give pointers to the areas where older persons are discriminated against and therefore domains where countries need to do more. Unfortunately, in Africa, we have very few countries. In Southern Africa, including Mauritius, we only have seven, and South Africa is one of them, Zambia and Malawi. Those studies are clearly indicating that uh, older persons are still discriminated against in many ways. That was Nicodemus Chipfupa, Regional Director of the Southern African Region at Help Age International, talking to Khumutso Mopulane. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in history to today in 1993. Former South African presidents Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts to bring about a democratic, non-racial South Africa. And that was today in history in 1993. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The law in Turkey does not recognize the existence of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex community, otherwise known as LGBTI, living them vulnerable to violence, discrimination and oppression, according to a Turkish rights activist. Sadef Kakmek spoke passionately about the current situation in the country for the LGBTI community ahead of a meeting at the United Nations. UN Radio Stephanie Castro has been speaking to Kakmek. Well, unfortunately, in Turkey, the LGBTIs are still deprived of their basic human rights. So what does that mean? It means that you can be beaten, you can be threatened by death just because you're LGBTI, or you can be fired from your job, you can be denied access to healthcare, to education. Unfortunately, in Turkey, the Turkish laws, and especially the constitution, does not recognize the existence of LGBTIs. There are no anti-discrimination laws that are protecting the LGBTIs, and the hate crimes also does not cover transphobia and homophobia, which makes the LGBTIs more vulnerable to violence, discrimination and oppression. What does your organization do to help the LGBTI community? 
my organization is called Spot LGBTI. It's Social Policies, Gender Identity and Sexual Orientation Studies Associations. What we do is we advocate for LGBTIs through a social policies perspective, which means that we are advocating for the social, economic and legal rights of the LGBTIs. We have two main missions. One of them is to raise awareness within the society and within the authority figures. And on the other hand, we are also conducting lobbying activities in order to change the laws. We are doing our best to actually raise awareness on the issue that LGBT rights are human rights by reminding the state of its own responsibilities to protect its own citizens. So what is your life like in Turkey as an openly gay woman? Well, to be honest, I am one of the luckiest people living in Turkey because, I mean, I have too many friends who were oppressed by their parents, face violence regularly or committed suicide or were murdered. So in that respect, I would say that I'm lucky. My parents know that I need took my mother 10 years to accept that I'm a lesbian and but now she's totally okay with that my father knows everything that I'm doing at the LGBTI movement but we don't speak about my own personal life so we do not utter that I am a lesbian in the house I'm totally okay with that because he's not doing anything I mean he could imprison me at home he could have I don't know do lots of other things but he's not doing this so he's treating me like a human being which is enough for me you know you mentioned fear when we were in the conference room if you could elaborate (laughs) on the fear of you know like you mentioned walking on the street with your girlfriend yes yes well it is the fear of not being protected by the laws it is the fear of even if your rights are violated you're not sure whether the justice will be done by the court I mean, this lack of protection provided by the state makes you extremely vulnerable and afraid. And in addition to that, the state also provokes violence. It is extremely hard to enjoy a peaceful life as a citizen of Turkey, I would say. What type of outcome would you like to see as the issue, the conversation is brought to the UN in the following days? There should be at least a long-term strategy to decrease and finally to eradicate the hate crimes targeting the LGBTI people. That is the most important thing to me. I definitely, as an activist and as a human being, I'm just hoping that the UN will implement the strategies in order to eradicate, not even decrease, yes, eradicate the hate crimes and the murders of LGBTIs. That was Turkish rights activist Sadef Kakmak speaking to UN Radio Stephanie Castro. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. 
One of the most insidious forms of corruption and criminality in the world today is the illegal wildlife trade, according to Prince William, the second in line to the British throne. Prince William was at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. to speak with corruption hunters from more than 120 countries at the third annual conference on international corruption and wildlife trafficking. Yesterday, the global community marked the International Anti-Corruption Day. This report by Daniel Dickinson opens with the words of the prince. At its heart, all corruption is an abuse of power, the pursuit of money or influence at the expense of society as a whole. Prince William was with the World Bank President Jim Yong Kim at the opening of the International Corruption Hunters Alliance in Washington, D.C. Addressing more than 300 experts and members of anti-corruption and prosecuting agencies, The Prince said corruption affects the world's most disadvantaged populations. Worst of all, it weighs most heavily upon the world's poorest and most powerless people. It deepens their hardship, stifles opportunity, distorts justice and undermines development. Where corrupt hands tear down faster than clean hands can build, escaping from the trap of poverty or conflict is much more difficult. The World Bank organises an annual conference on international corruption and wildlife trafficking, bringing together international law enforcement specialists. Jim Yong Kim underlined the bank's two main goals, to end extreme poverty by 2030 and to increase the wealth of the bottom 40% of the population. We know that setting such an ambitious goal will require us to step up even more in the fight against corruption in its many forms. Corruption may very well be one of the most blatant expressions of inequality in our society, a long-running zero-sum game whose stakes keep getting higher. The illegal trade in wildlife is highly corrupt. Prince William said he was inspired by both his grandfather and father who championed international conservation for over 50 years. This led him, he said, to become president of an organization called United for Wildlife, for which he campaigns with his brother, Prince Harry. The cumulative effect of wildlife crime is shocking. The abundance of the world species has decreased by almost a third over the last 100 years. This hugely impoverishes all of us. We need new efforts to drive wildlife trafficking from our lands, our seas and our skies. And time is not on our side. The prince added he is determined not to let the world's children grow up on a planet where the most iconic and endangered species have been wiped out. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, says while its grid remains under pressure, it's not expecting any load shedding today. The power utility, however, says it will make an announcement during the day about possible load shedding tomorrow and Friday. This as the grid is expected to be under pressure. South Africans have been experiencing regular rolling blackouts for several weeks due to limited generating capacity and several problems that have occurred at existing power plants. ESCOM spokesperson Andrew Etzinger. There's been an improvement in the situation steadily since Monday. So on, on uh, Wednesday at this stage, uh, 
while the grid is tight, we're not expecting load shedding. When we look ahead to Thursday and Friday, there we, we are going to be under pressure. But we will give an update during the course of the, of the day, but uh, hopefully the situation will not be as bad as it was last week on Thursday and Friday. The South African government says it's making progress in fostering balanced and sustainable trade ties with China. Last week, President Jacob Zuma undertook a state visit to China. It came amid criticism that South Africa was not getting economic benefits from its relationship with the Asian giant. International Relations Minister Maitim Gwanamashabane has argued that South Africa places emphasis on value-added trade as opposed to being a mere source of raw materials. If we say we want more South African exports into the Chinese market, it should be that it shouldn't be a continuation of raw material, but beneficiated goods and services. And that's why we've signed this more than four protocols on agriculture, because we also want our agro-produce to go into China. Kenya will increase spending by 10% in the 2015-16 fiscal year, July-June, to $2.5 billion. The Treasury said in a pre-budget presentation the government planned to borrow from domestic market to partly plug a predicted budget deficit of 6.8% of gross domestic product. Kenya borrowed from international capital markets for the first time this year, raising $2 billion from its maiden sovereign bond in June to take some pressure off local markets and lending rates. Chief Executive of Global Miner Anglo-American Mark Kutifani aims to cut around 60,000 jobs as part of a wider reorganization. The company is aiming to cut the number of direct employees and contractors to a total of about $102,000 in 2007 to about $162,000 in 2013. The chief executive of Anglo Americans Iron Ore subsidiary uh, of Kumba also said on Tuesday that he has proposed a 40% reduction in jobs at the company's headquarters here in Pretoria, South Africa. Brand crude has fallen more than one US dollars, resuming its fall caused by a glut of oil in the market after a short-lived reprieve the previous day when a weaker dollar had provided some support. Worries about oversupply have pushed Brandt down 40% since June. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.43 South African Rand, 9.43 Botswana Pula, 6.32 in Zambia, 0.64 British Pound, 0.81 across the Eurozone. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,230. Platinum $1,242 an ounce. Brand crude $65.95 a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with rugby news, in 2006, after winning the Dubai leg of the Sevens World Series, the South African Sevens team returned home only to be beaten in George and the final by New Zealand in front of their home crowd. But two years later, they managed to win the two events, and this year they'll be hoping to do the same. The Blitzboker have arrived in Port Elizabeth, but they'll want to forget about their triumph this past weekend and concentrate now on the South African leg this weekend. Blitzboker winger Ryan Rhino Benjamin feels that the Abu Dhabi tournament was a challenge to win and they will need to focus on correcting their mistakes ahead of the home leg. It starts with the skirts from the beginning, like last week. So we need to go back to, to the basics and um, go check what we did wrong um, and start building up and, and start building a team spirit also again for this weekend in Port Elizabeth. Captain Kyle Brown says that after their performance they had this past weekend, it will be important that they make the home series count. But again, they will need to avoid succumbing to the pressure. It's something that we have considered over many of the, the, the tournaments that are played here in South Africa, but it's definitely something that we, we don't want to apply too much pressure to the guys, just uh, that they, you know, they go out and enjoy their time at home and the one opportunity they get to play at home on the circuit. Under football news, 10 men Malawi and a 17 national team opened their 2014 African Union Sports Commission Zone 5 Youth Games account with a 1-0 win over Angola at the Liwewe Stadium in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. The win is a relief for Malawi, who had striker precious Mososa red-carded. Malawi will be expected to step up their performance when meeting Mozambique next week, Tuesday. The Kosafa website indicates that the other teams, such as Zimbabwe, made a superb start to the men's football tournament by thumping South Africa 6-0 in their opening Group B encounter last Friday. The other fixture in the men's tournament between hosts Zimbabwe and Mozambique finished 1-0 also on Friday. On to local football news, Kaza Chiefs twice came from behind to draw 2 all with Platinum Stars in an exciting APSA Premiership match at the Peter Mugaba Stadium in the Limpopo province on Tuesday night. Robert Ngambi and Eliza Rogers scored for Stars while Simpiwe Shabalala and Defoma Shamaide netted for Chiefs. George Maluleka, George Libesi and Morgan Gold returned for Chiefs in the starting lineup, while Stars had to do without Vuyo Mere as well as Lowele to Mpeta, who were both out due to injuries. The draw takes Chiefs to 37 points, thus giving them a 14-point lead over second-place defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns. In the other matches tonight, Orlando Pirates host defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns at the Orlando Stadium, while Bedvetsvis host Ajax Cape Town at Bedvetsvis Stadium. Both matches kick off at 7.30 p.m. Central African time. And finally, former Proteas and under-19 coach Ray Jennings says he's inspired by what coach Ephraim Sheikhs Mashaba was able to achieve in his second stint at the helm of Bafana Bafana. Ironically, Jennings' coach Path and Mashaba are similar after they were both sacked as national team coaches due to an indifferent opinion with certain players and lack of backing from management. Earlier this year, Jennings guided the under-19 cricket team to their first ever World Cup title to claim the Abu Dhabi showpiece and Jennings says he has unfinished business with the Proteas.
I just got a, a tough question when, <laughs> when really I'm actually not involved in that in writing anyway, uh, anymore. So I've got a tough question to answer. I think a lot of people out in the market realise that, that I do have an unfinished job. I'm, I'm too passionate about the job and uh, you know, I will continue in cricket even if it's not with Cricket South Africa or with Cricket South Africa. Surprisingly, Jennings' contract was not renewed when it expired back in March, but even that was not enough to stop the connection that the 60-year-old shares with some of the players as they continue to seek his guidance. Well, coaching under 19 for eight years, all those players are involved currently at the moment. So it's quite nice when you walk around a cricket uh, field to see those smiling faces and the warm reception that you do get. So there's definitely very strong links between myself and a lot of the players in the country at the moment. Any team maybe that's looking at your services, maybe overseas, locally? Yeah, they, they were one or two overseas, but you know, I'm a South African, I want to stay here, and this is where my love is to actually grow the cricket in my own country. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe fires his deputy Joyce Mujuru and Somali forces arrest more than 60 Al-Shabaab rebels. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Yvette Chaka Chaka with a track titled Kisangani.
xưa 